It was a bucket of water right in the face. When Todd McFarlane arrived on The Amazing Spider-Man with issue 298, cover dated March 1988, it was a seismic shift. For years, Spider-Man had been trapped in an artistic rut. Not in any bad way, but the character had been following the same template laid down primarily by John Romita for 22 years. Every now and again, an artist like Frank Miller or John Byrne or a Ron Friends would try to call back to Steve Ditko. Or someone like Mike Zeck would do completely their own thing. But largely, Ramita had had such an impact on the character that it was hard for someone to come in and do it differently. And yet, that's what McFarlane did. No one had drawn Spider-Man like McFarlane before. Everyone would try to draw him like McFarlane afterwards. No one would succeed. McFarlane's arrival coincided with my leaving the Spider-Man books. The constant fill-ins caused I now know by behind-the-scenes shenanigans with editor Jim Owlsley was whirring. The stories were boring and increasingly dark and miserable. Gang War, The Death of Gene DeWolf, Spider-Man vs. Wolverine, Craven's Last Hunt, all dark, miserable and grim. Well told in some cases, but still dour. The comics seemed to be evolving in a direction that was counter to what it did best. Death was a prevalent factor, with long-time characters like Ned Leeds, Gene DeWolf and Craven the Hunter being offed for shock value and being replaced with nothing of substance. I dropped Amazing Spider-Man with issue 289, the shockingly bad resolution to the Hobgoblin saga that completely screwed up multiple characters and provided an ending that satisfied no one. Yes, I missed The Wedding. I picked it up later. I missed Craven's Last Hunt. I bought it as a hardcover graphic novel collection when that was still raw. I missed Life in the Mad Dog Ward. I don't think anyone really cared about that one. I almost missed McFarlane. I wonder what would happen if I hadn't happened to be in the newsagents at that moment and seen Amazing Spider-Man 298, 299 and 300 all in the shop at the same time. Would I not have gone back at all? Would I have never read comics again? Road's not taken. And ultimately, irrelevant. I did go in that shop. I did see those three issues. I was blown away. My eyes were attracted to the covers. Two white covers with no background, so the eye focused on the image, and one that was a big circle of Spider-Man surrounded by red 300s. I picked up all three. Who the hell was drawing these? The late 80s were a period of change. I was fresh out of high school and new to college. Comics weren't a priority anymore, so I hadn't read The Incredible Hulk. I may have seen Batman Year 2, but I don't think I had. I had no clue who this McFarlane guy was. And he was drawing Spider-Man? And he was owning it. I flicked through them. 300 looked better than the others. Should I just get that one? Nah. Comics were still only 30 pence an issue. Even with issue 300 being double-sized, I could get them all for just over a quid. Try getting Amazing Spider-Man 300 for a quid nowadays. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled it back in. McFarlane was preceded by writer David Michelini, who arrived on the title just a few months before McFarlane did. Michelini was one of Marvel's rising stars at that point. Having revamped Iron Man with the groundbreaking Demon in a Bottle storyline, he then moved over to Star Wars, where, along with Walt Simonson and Tom Palmer, he turned what could have been a severe negative tread water for three years whilst the world waited for Return of the Jedi into a positive, containing some of the finest stories in that series' history. He then started his Spider-Man run on the eminently forgettable satellite title, Web of Spider-Man, where his issues are arguably the best that book ever got. McFarlane came from The Incredible Hulk, where he'd helped launch writer Peter David's 15-year run on the book, and prior to that had a few issues of Infinity Inc. and Detective Comics under his belt from DC. 
McAleenia McFarlane didn't inherit editor Jim Owlsley, thankfully. Rather, new editor Jim Salakrup joined. But they did inherit the biggest change to Spider-Man's titles since Gwen Stacy's death. Peter Parker's marriage to Mary Jane Watson. McAleenia was against the marriage from the start, feeling it didn't really suit the character. Andy's story for the wedding issue, Amazing Spider-Man Annual number 21, was replotted by then-editor-in-chief Jim Shooter. Michelini originally had MJ jilt Peter at the altar, an ending that makes a lot more sense to the actual story, should you ever read it. Michelini had no say over the rewrite, so he scripted over Shooter's plot and then jumped over to the main book. He may not have been a fan of the marriage, but Michelini looked forward to the challenge of writing a married Peter Parker, as it at least had the virtue of never having been tried. McFarlane, always cocky, asked for the book. Well, he asked editor Jim Salakrup for a gig, and based upon his Hulk work, was given amazing. McFarlane knew he was following in the footsteps of giants, but this is what freed him up. Romita had made Spider-Man an icon, but once something becomes iconic, it runs the risk of becoming stale. No one wants to change it for fear of breaking it. McFarlane felt that no one wanted to break away from what Romita had done, but McFarlane couldn't do what Romita had done. He wasn't John Romita, he was Todd McFarlane. Ironically, this gave McFarlane a license to do what he wanted, and, for the first time in years, Spider-Man, artistically at least, felt fresh again. McAleenie came on board with issue 296 and wrote two issues before McFarlane joined in. These were drawn by Alex Saviuk, then drawing the Spider-Man newspaper strip, and inked by Vinnie Coletta, who was notorious in comics fan circles for his approach to softening art and even deleting some of it so he could work faster. Both artists have done better work in the past, and the issues look much more old-fashioned than they are. Story-wise, they're pretty good, though. Dr. Octopus, Spider-Man's arch-adversary, had been left in a right state by previous writers. Whenever he saw Spider-Man, he froze. This isn't exactly conducive to action-packed stories, so Michelini set about reverting Octopus to normal, albeit with a wacko plan. Oc wants to destroy New York just to kill Spider-Man. This feels a little like destroying the anthill to kill one ant, but whatever. Oc's mental state is fluid. Michelini also updates Spider-Man's tech for the first time in years. Fed up with running out of web fluid, Peter not only redesigns his web shooters with a fuel empty sign, a flashing LED on his wrist, but he also redesigns the shooters to be a lightweight plastic so as to better be hidden under his shirt and allow him to wear them through airport customs. He also adds a spring-loaded launcher for better accuracy with his spider tracers. This was wonderful stuff. For the first year or so of his existence, Peter was constantly noodling with his tech, adding new features and upgrading, but somewhere along the line, Peter, or the writers, got lazy. This was a nice addition and made perfect sense. The status quo is somewhat different. Peter is married, which is the obvious change, but that makes no difference as Mary Jane, in these issues, is conveniently out on assignment. He's still freelancing at the Daily Bugle, but he answers now to Kate Cushing, new city editor, and frequently works with Joy Mercado, investigative reporter. Robbie is still around, though, and he tells Peter some home truths. He's a married man now. His freelance life is no good for him. It's time Peter Parker got a proper job. The Doctor Octopus story is pretty straightforward. As with the best Spider-Man stories, there's a delightful shot of irony running through it, in that Spidey has to let Ock beat him within an inch of his life just to bring Ock out of his catatonic state. This, in turn, saves many a New Yorker's life. Since the lead Ditko days, it's a long-established tradition that Spider-Man will make his own life difficult for himself, and this, in turn, enables him to grow. That's the theme of this story, growing up. Peter has to let himself be beaten as Spider-Man to ultimately win the day. He has to put aside his old life and embrace his new one if his marriage is to work. He has to grow up. And this is where these two issues excel, in the world building and the setting up of Peter's new life. I myself have misgivings about the marriage, but as with the death of Gwen all those years ago, something needed doing to reinvigorate the strip. Michelini, while it's not been overly neighboured by the idea of marrying MJ and Peter, embraces it 
and starts adding new wrinkles. Peter does need a better and more consistent job. It's about time he stops his web shooters from running out and nearly killing him, and he does need to accept his new responsibilities. McAlhinney may have not have been a fan of the marriage, but as a professional writer, he looked at the situation, gave it careful consideration, and made the best of it. His run really kicks off with the next issue, which sees McFarlane join as penciler, with Bob McLeod as inker. Chance Encounters boasts a wonderful cover of a new villain, Chance, blasting Spider-Man. Spidey is still in his black and white outfit, and Chance is a well-designed bad guy looking practical and functional. Both this and the cover to issue 299 are of a piece, looking like they could take place mere minutes apart. Issue 298's cover has Spider-Man fighting Chance alone. On 299's cover, he's fighting above the heads of military men. Both have the white background that makes him stand out. Both issues are also really fun, engaging, entertaining stories, with McAlhinney showing his command of superhero fiction and McFarlane coming into his own as an artist. Well, almost. After the opening, which has Chance engaging in a mission to kill a mobster who is about to turn state's evidence, we turn to Murray Jane, a modelling session in fact. The former is an action-packed beat with even the feds none too upset about the mobster's death. The latter is one of the most infamous pieces of McFarlane art. Now, for the most part, McFarlane was pretty good. Sure, his Spider-Man had elastic anatomy, but we forgive him that because, well, because he's Spider-Man. And McFarlane did have a better grasp of human anatomy than many of the hot artists of the same period. However, Mary Jane's modelling shot at the bottom of page three is quite remarkable. MJ seems to have a left arm that bends contrary to the laws of nature, and a left leg that sticks out of her ribs and bends backwards. I am flabbergasted that this got through. Did McFarlane not look at it and think, ugh, that looks a bit off? Did Inca Bob McLeod not look at it and wonder how the hell MJ could bend like that? Did the editor, Jim Salicrup, not look at it, call McLeod and say, yeah, can you fix that when you ink it? I would argue this is worse than Sandman fisting Spider-Man, because at least that was anatomically correct. However this happened, it's an inadvertent chuckle, and we quickly get on with the plot. Peter is still hanging around the bugle looking for work, when MJ calls him to say they may have a lead on a condo in Bedford Towers. Robbie is impressed. Bedford Towers is an expensive high-end place. McAlhinney does a good job giving MJ her own agency and life, but this begs the question, where was MJ living before they got married? Why has she moved all her stuff into Peter's crummy little one-room bedsit in Midtown, instead of having him go and live with her? These questions are destined to go unanswered, as Joy Mercado offers Peter a gig. She has received a tip that foreign arms are going to be unloaded at Pier 17, and it's an inside job. A congressman wants to buy cheaply instead of supporting local manufacturer, so he's importing from abroad. Joy tells Peter to go cover this, take some pictures, make some notes, she'll type up the story, and they'll split the earnings. Peter's not terribly pleased about it, but he feels he needs the money, and so he accepts. Now here we could have had something that could have been a big deal. Peter has to accept he lives with someone who earns shit tons more money than he does. And for some men this is a problem. I think Michelini could have mined this for more drama than he actually does. Peter and Mary Jane could have tackled this like adults. Peter could have gone back to school maybe whilst MJ took care of the bills. MJ has a job that pays fantastically, but it isn't a steady gig. There will be times when her income is quite low. How would they deal with that? Now, when she lived alone, MJ could probably go a month or two without work and not be too bothered by it. But now there are other things she has to consider, such as healthcare. Without an institution, such as the NHS, is Peter now covered by MJ? Did Peter even have healthcare before this? Is MJ doing anything for the future? What will she do when the modelling dries up? We don't really go into this, and probably rightly so. It's not that exciting to discuss all of this in a Spider-Man comic. But with MJ in high demand, maybe Peter could return to school, so that when they do decide to have children, he will be in a regular paying job with healthcare, and that will allow MJ some maternity leave. 
Maybe MJ could invest her money in some way. This would have freed him up to be Spider-Man, as well as giving him a direction. If he was at school while MJ was working, that would also allow him to remain as a freelance photographer, the Bugle. It's the illusion of change, even though nothing's really changed that much. As mentioned, though, Michelangelo doesn't really go into it in that much depth. Peter decides to treat MJ. So he whips up a mean lasagna and plans to serve it to her wearing nothing more than a bow tie and a smile. But MJ doesn't come home alone. She's brought her friend, Sandy, who does her hair and makeup for her. It's embarrassing for Peter, but cute for MJ. And on the plus side, at least he was wearing something. After dinner, this leads the newlyweds to the bedroom. Peter offers MJ dessert. The Venus butterfly. Comics. Just for kids. The Venus Butterfly, for those who are unaware, was a sex act invented for the TV show L.A. Law, but one that has since become a real thing. You can go and look it up online if you so desire. Elsewhere, Chance's new contract is to steal a secret shipment of Euro arms scheduled to arrive at, you've guessed it, Pier 17. It's here we learn Chance has a code. Yes, he'll kill people, but he won't work for terrorists. Chance is assured by his client, Drake, from the Life Foundation, that this is not terrorism. Chance takes the gig. Of course, if you've been paying attention, you can see where all this is going. Spider-Man and Chance are both at Pier 17 at the same time. Spider-Man arrives first. He already has his pictures of the arms arriving, fulfilling his deal with joy. But then he spots Chance, and he decides to double his money by following Chance to whoever he's selling them to, capture all parties, and get a second story. Double his money. Double your chance. It's a gamble of which Chance would approve, given his motivation is to gamble his skills against the project. He never does what he does purely for the money. It's a nice dichotomy between the two characters. Chance only kills people he's paid to kill, which Peter knows. So this'll be alright, right? Wrong! A sudden blackout, see... X-Factor 25 for details, causes a soldier to go for his rifle. Chance guns him down. Spidey is livid. His famous guilt complex takes over. If he'd stopped Chance straight away, the soldier wouldn't have been shot. This is a nice character beat. We know Spider-Man isn't really responsible for this, but it's easy to see how he may believe that he is. McFarlane uses this to treat us to a wonderful mid-air fight scene. Spider-Man's best fights are always in mid-air, where his acrobatics and agility are pushed to the fore. Chance gets away when Spider-Man attends to the wounded officer, ensuring he gets medical attention. Chance gets his, though. He is betrayed by the Life Corporation, who electrocute him, but don't kill him. Yet. Peter tells MJ about the incident and his worries over money. She tells him he's a silly. McFarlane is moving Mary Jane away from the Ramita clone already. He's given her longer hair and a much more modern style. Gone is the straight locks with bangs in is a wavy, curly look. She's also very classy in her attire in this issue, be it the full-length nightgown she sleeps in, or the clothes she wears for both her gig and in real life. Moonlighting, a TV show about a former model-turned-PI, was on the air at this time, and I wonder if McFarlane was looking at that show's star, Sybil Shepherd, as a model for MJ's look. Peter is also more modern, wearing a t-shirt, jeans and a leather jacket. I mention all this to emphasise how McFarlane was modernising the look of the book, but also to demonstrate that he wasn't the first to do it. Ross Andrew and Gil Kane both made MJ and Peter more contemporary. John Romita Jr. updated both in the early 80s, giving Peter a longer hair. And whilst Romita Jr. didn't change MJ's hair, he did update her wardrobe. Granted, no one did it more radically than McFarlane. The final page is the first appearance of a strange man who seems to have a mad on for Spidey. He also seems to be wearing the black costume, last seen slinking off in Web of Spider-Man number one. This is, of course, Venom, and more about him later. We pick up Amazing Spider-Man 299 the next day. Spider-Man managed to get off a spider tracer and is tracking Chance. He happens upon a truck, thanks to his spider sense, and is convinced that Chance is inside. However, when a kid shoots his mouth off about Spidey hitching a ride, the truck is pulled over. The police can't just pop the truck open on Spidey's say-so, and so Spidey's left with egg on his face. 
This is a pleasing opening. It's funny. Spider-Man hitching a ride. He's done all the time. And no one seems to call him out about it. But it also shows Spidey's limitations. He needs proof. He also makes an out-of-date pop culture reference. George Burns, really? He does manage to get a name that he didn't have before. Carlton Drake is mentioned by the truck driver. But other than that, this is a bust. Upon his return home, he can't just drop through the skylight as usual. MJ has a cleanup because... Of course she does. And as such, she's had to leave a note in the skylight to stop Peter from just dropping in. It's a cute bit that again plays into Peter's insecurities about Mary Jane earning more than he does, which is something he really needs to get over. Mary Jane notices that Peter is feeling down, and to cheer him up, takes him to a party. She takes him to the Spawning Club, where they meet Eddie Murphy and Paul Schaefer. I have no idea who Paul Schaefer is, so I had to look him up. And as I'm sure the vast majority of you lovely listeners know, he's the musical guy on David Letterman. Still means nothing to me. The clothes here are spectacular. MJ looks great in a full-length dress with a waist-high slit to the leg. Peter, by contrast, looks massively uncomfortable in a powder blue suit with shoulder pads, a skinny tie and white shades. Given where McFarlane's career would take him, the name The Spawning Club is amusing in hindsight. This is also the first misstep in losing Peter's everyman status. Previously, we'd seen that MJ was a working model and dancer, some gigs in clubs, some photo shoots, and maybe even an off-Broadway show or two. But as of this issue, she's Cindy Crawford. This was more of a problem than it seemed, and this is what soured me partially on the marriage. Had MJ stayed in the lower regions of showbiz, this would have been fine. Having her move in the same circles as Madonna puts her in a whole other league. Elsewhere, the Life Foundation has betrayed Chance because they want the secret of his technology, which is all controlled cybernetically. But let's be honest, we're here for Peter, and he's at the Bugle investigating Carlton Drake and finding out bugger all. The only thing he can find is the withdrawal of support for agricultural research at ESU. Oddly, Robbie asks Peter how he is, having not seen him for a while. Robbie, you spoke to him two days ago. A short walk over to ESU, because as we remember from Stan Lee's comics, everything New York is in walking distance, allows Peter to discover that Drake has holdings in New Jersey. New Jersey was where the truck was heading. It's all coming together. Peter decides to hitchhike to New Jersey rather than scam a ride as Spider-Man. Why didn't you just get a taxi? Anyway, he makes his way to the location and, thanks to some really good layouts from McFarlane, sneaks inside. He locates Chance, and Chance, with nothing to lose, tells Spider-Man everything. Turns out that the Life Foundation are survivalists who believe the end times are coming, and they are offering hiding places to rich people for $5 million a pop. This amused me intensely. If we've learned anything during the pandemic, it's that rich people are mostly useless in the apocalypse. So after they've survived the end times, what would they do? Very few hedge fund millionaires would know how to farm the land, and no one with those skills would be alive to do it for them. Seems they haven't really thought this through. The Life Foundation want Chance's mentally driven technology to ensure no one turns against them. The balance of power must be maintained. Spider-Man is forced to team up with Chance to stop the Life Foundation. Again, the back four pages are a thoroughly entertaining action scene with some great louts from McFarlane, culminating in a splendid full-page splash after Chance blows the place to hell. It seems slightly hypocritical of Spider-Man that he doesn't chastise Chance about this. This whole mess started when Chance shot one guy. Here, Spidey lets him blow up a power plant that is quite large. I don't see how Spider-Man can be sure that everyone got out in time. The issue ends with another teaser. The black-clad bad guy from last issue is in Peter's apartment, just as Mary Jane arrives home. And thus, we are introduced to Venom. Venom would go on to be one of the major stars of 90s Marvel comics. His hulking, monstrous appearance, his simplistic motivations, he was a killer, pure and simple, and his ability to give Spider-Man a run for his money, all playing a part in his popularity. He was even morphed into an anti-hero as the decade rolled on. His popularity saw Avi Arad, TV producer for Marvel and a man with more than a little interest in the action figure market, make sure he was in the 1995 animated series as quickly as possible. 
He then forced Sam Raimi to shoehorn Venom into Spider-Man 3, ruining a decent franchise and killing off Raimi's Spider-Man 4. Well done, Avi. Tom Hardy recently took on the role in his own movie, making him the first Spider-Man villain to have his own film, albeit one shorn of his connections to Spider-Man. With all the hype around Venom and what he became, it's staggering, therefore, to look at his first appearance here and see how low-key it is. Initially, the character was conceived as a woman. According to his interview in Comics Creators on Spider-Man, Michelini had already started setting up Venom in his Web of Spider-Man run. In a few issues of that series, Peter had been nearly pushed in front of a train and dislodged from a wall by someone who didn't activate his Spider-Sense. This was to be revealed to be Venom. Apparently, this lady was to have seen her husband splatted by a driver, not paying attention due to him being busy watching Spider-Man in action. She went into premature labour and lost her baby, and this caused her to be discovered by the symbiote after it fled Peter Parker in Web Issue 1. Editor Jim Salakrup felt that a woman wasn't formidable enough to take on Spider-Man, ignoring She-Hulk, Titania and the Enchantress, all of whom have given Spider-Man some trouble before, and he asked Michelini to gender-swap the character. He did, and the rest is history. Some people have accused Salakrup of sexism here, because of course they have, but I think he did the character a favour. Michelini's original concept is very flawed. The character, as envisioned, blames Spider-Man for something that is completely out of his control. And whilst Venom's actual origin is just as stupid, there is at least more of a connection to Spider-Man than in the original idea, poor as that connection may be. Granted, none of this really fixes my problems with Venom, be he male or female. He's a one-note, very simplistic villain in this first appearance, clearly meant to be one and done. He's visually fun, sure, but there's nothing to him as portrayed here. He exists to kill Spider-Man, that's it. He knows Spider-Man's secret ID, he can negate his Spider-Sense, and this, to me, would seem to make his task pretty easy. His origin is also specious. He hates Spider-Man because Spidey inadvertently revealed him, in his real-life guise as Eddie Brock, to be a shitty reporter. It's also a retcon. Eddie Brock is slotted into prior continuity by being part of an earlier storyline, the Death of Gene DeWolf story. Plus, he worked at the Daily Globe and knows Peter Parker. This is a little bit... much. Sure, his basic motivations are lame, but at least they're not kangaroo lame. Giving him a connection to Peter is a little bit too pat. Knowing Peter's ID is also stupid, as it limits the story potential. Look at the Green Goblin. Once you reveal the secret, there's nowhere to go with the character. It's the same here. Venom has nowhere to go. Or so I thought, which shows what little I know. Venom, in issue 300, was the first time McFarlane inked as well as penciled his own work in Amazing Spider-Man. And it's a solid art job. This is before he became a superstar, so he's still servicing the story rather than just doing pin-ups. And his inks aren't overly thick yet. Picking up where we left off, MJ is a quivering mess after being terrorised by Venom. She's so scared, she can't face Peter in his black and white costume. Some readers have read this to imply Venom raped Mary Jane. These people are sick and need help. Nothing in the story implies that. And I worry about the mental health of readers for whom this is the go-to move for villainy. Peter actually asks her outright if Venom hurt her, and she replies, not physically. So read the fucking comic before allowing your adolescent fantasies free reign. This is the final nail in the coffin of the Chelsea Street apartment. Mary Jane can't spend the night there after being terrorised by Venom and she and Peter go to a hotel for the evening where Peter reminisces about the secret walls and where the symbiote costume came from for newer readers. The editor gets the caption box wrong though. This happened in Secret Wars issue 8, not 9, and this is where Cheesecake McFarlane really kicks in. MJ is in bed wearing something completely impractical for sleeping in. It's an off-the-shoulder lacy number that rides high up in the thigh and has a bow in the middle. It may be completely dumb nightwear, but I'm not going to lie about how it affected 16-year-old me. <clears throat> the scur has caused MJ to pull in some favours, and they've moved up to the top of the list for the condo at Bedford Towers. Peter nips back to the apartment for his camera, borrows the sonic blaster from the Fantastic Four that he used previously to isolate the black costume and get a change of clothes. 
He then walks to meet Mary Jane. Some nice sequential storytelling here, as McFarlane has Eddie blending in with the crowd by changing his appearance so Peter doesn't spot him. At the condo, Peter is still pretty down in the dumps, so MJ takes her top off and encourages him to take some photos for the private collection. Nowadays, they'd be all over the internet. The rest of the issue is mostly the fight we knew was coming between Venom and Spider-Man. Peter is at his housewarming party when he spots Venom swinging around. He ditches the party and follows him. Spider-Man realises the Sonic Blaster won't work because the symbiote has completely bonded with Eddie Brock. He just leaves the Sonic Blaster at Eddie's apartment, which I'm sure will please the Fantastic Four no end. Eddie follows Spider-Man when he tries to run and they end up at the All Saints Church, where Spider-Man managed to forcefully remove the symbiote from himself back in Web of Spider-Man number one. Venom goes overboard, webbing Spider-Man to the bell in the tower where he will be both crushed and squished in a manner exactly the same as the bookworm tried to kill Robin in the 1960s TV show. I've no idea why Venom didn't just kill Spider-Man, but he does seem to follow the classic supervillain tropes in this issue to a T. First, he exposits long enough for Spider-Man to gain the upper hand, and then he puts him in an elaborate death trap rather than just kill him. Spidey also realises that the organic nature of the webbing gives him an edge. Eventually, Venom won't be able to generate enough, and so Spidey whirs him out until web fluid can no longer be internally generated. This is a flaw that clearly they didn't think about when they made the Sam Raimi movies. Spider-Man takes the now incapacitated Brock and the symbiote back to the Fantastic Four for safekeeping. Amazing Spider-Man 300 is a fun read. It's easy to pick holes in it, but that doesn't prevent this from being a lot of fun and a good anniversary issue. There's humour, some cheesecake, lots of action, and McFarlane is at the top of his game. Panel layout, storytelling and narrative are all really good, and he and Michelini make a pretty good team. The issue concludes with MJ telling Peter she can't look at him in the black and white costume, and so he burns it. She puts him back in the red and blues, actually a knockoff he bought in Germany, but it does the job. He will replace this in Amazing Spider-Man 301 with a proper new costume, I presume that he sewed himself. The legend begins anew, we are informed on the last page. A nice splash by McFarlane, but it's easily his least effective drawing of Spider-Man in the entire issue. Issue 301's cover is exactly the same as issue 300, except Spider-Man is wearing his red and blues. It's a great piece of work, though, and if I could earn double the money for the same piece of work, you could bet I'd do it. The Sable Gauntlet sees the return of Silver Sable, CEO of Sable International, an organisation originally founded to hunt Nazi war criminals, but now reimagined as bounty hunters. Sable's company have been hired by Jason Pruitt to ensure his new building is secure. His head of security, Frank Cruz, doesn't think Sable Inc. is getting the job done. And so he convinces Pruitt to offer Silver $10,000 to tackle the system herself. The opening is fun, like a spy show pre-credit sequence. Silver Sable is 80 chic. As I mentioned earlier, there's a Sybil Shepherd vibe, this time to Sable with her big hair and model fashion sense. Sable always dresses well, and here is no exception, decked out in all white with the typical of the era shoulder pads. What I like about Sable is she was clearly designed to be a little bit older, in her mid-thirties, so she's not a waif or a kid. She's solid, she looks like she can take care of herself. She's more like a Les Mills instructor than McFarlane's usual pretty women. Rachel Nichols should play her in a movie. Over at the Watson Parker place, Peter is juggling furniture after their recent move to Bedford Towers. MJ needs to be across town for a photo shoot and Peter wants to head over to ESU to check out their advanced photography courses. This felt... off. Photography was something Peter fell into. It was an easy way of earning money to help support Aunt May, and afterwards it was an easy side gig to supplement his student grant. He never wanted to be a photographer. He wanted to do something in the sciences. Once he graduated, which he has, although I don't recall if he finished his post-grad, I envisioned him going in that direction. Having him actively pursue photography feels like he's going in the wrong direction. Anyway, before he does that, he drops by the Simcarian Embassy, home of Silver Sable. He wants to know why she recently went after him, and she says, It was a job, nothing personal. Spider-Man's pissed off at this, but is interrupted when Sable is visited by Pruitt and Cruz to finalise their arrangements. 
One of the reasons Sable became popular in the 90s was this walking of that line. This was big in the 90s. Silver Sable simply hired her talents out to the highest bidder. She's not that different to Chance, although Silver won't kill for the sake of it, nor is she an assassin. She's offered a job. If it doesn't clash with her morals or belief system, she'll take it. Don't much care what it is. Spider-Man's Spider-Sense tingles a little when he sees Pruitt and Cruz, but he says nothing. Let's Sable stew in her own juice. This is a tad petty, but... A, she did hunt Spider-Man for money, and two, she wouldn't listen to him anyway. Subplot alert! A nice elderly gentleman is looking for Peter. In a serious breach of security, the doorman at Bedford Towers tells the guy where Peter can be located. Data Protection Act, anybody? And where is Peter? Delightful listener, he is at ESU, drinking in the halls of academia and wishing he'd never left. Dr. Sloan from Peter's TA days cons him into taking class, which I presume Peter doesn't get paid for, which is a shame, as supply teacher rates are pretty high. Peter doesn't seem to realise that he's good at it and enjoys it, and that this would be a far more productive career path. It'd take him a good 13 years to figure that out. The day proceeds as it ever does in Peter's life. Mary Jane gets into a verbal catfight with another model, me and indeed Yao, and the distinguished elderly gentleman keeps missing Peter. Silver Sable heads to the Pruitt building to run the gauntlet, but Spider-Man is being constantly nagged by the Spider-Sense signal earlier on. Because of course he can't just let it go. We'd have been very disappointed in him if he had. Pruitt seems legit, but Cruz... He's something else, entirely. Spidey indulges in some breaking and entering, rummaging around Cruz's apartment to find... Cruz is a goddamn Nazi! Hate those guys. Cruz is really Frank Kraus, the son of Heinrich Kraus, Nazi war criminal. Sable put Daddy away. Good enough reason for revenge. Spider-Man webs over to the Pruitt building toot sweet. This is a very dated storyline today. You could probably just about get away with it in 1988. In 2020, ages the characters considerably. Sable is in the middle of the test and taking it very seriously, and a good job too. She doesn't realise it's not a test. The traps are designed to kill. Spider-Man arrives just in time, as is his want, and after a brief fight of misunderstanding, he convinces Sable he's on the level. It all ends well. Well, for Sable, anyway. Pruitt promises her a full salary and a bonus to track down Cruz. Spider-Man ends up with nothing. Action is his reward. Michelinie's story is pretty good. It's fun and frothy from a time when not everything was dark and miserable. It's a straightforward adventure yarn in which Spider-Man is embroiled in a situation not of his own making and he ends up being screwed over. It's pretty much textbook. McFarlane's art is variable. For every ultra-detailed panel is a page with no backgrounds at all. He's also in his doughy phase, with both Spider-Man and Sable having panels where they have massive thighs and chunky midsections. It's pretty fun to look at, though, with Michelinie adding some value to the pretty pictures. Peter returns home to find the distinguished gentleman is Martin Jacobi, and Kirk Connors has recommended Peter for a job in Kansas. Mid-American Gothic is issue 302, and the cover has a massive super weapon smoking, as if its ammo is spent having blasted an empty Spider-Man costume. The story answers the question, what happens if you get the superpowers of what is considered to be a silly animal? Peter heads to Kansas to tour the facilities of online research, an amusing name in 2020. Michelini was ahead of the game here, as a number of writers after this would try to drop Peter into a scientific research facility, only to have it go belly up before long. This is a different take on that idea, with Peter thoroughly impressed by Dr. Jacobi and online, only to have it all go away in one issue, when MJ tells him that her career is in New York, and she doesn't want to leave. McElhinney introduces the setup and the problems almost instantly. Jacobi must intervene when Dr. Royce Nero, online's brilliant but volatile new scientific genius, is having a minor yelling match with Wes Cassidy, a big Kansas construction boss, here upgrading the research facilities. We quickly learn, thanks to an accident, that Cassidy was bitten by a radioactive rabbit. Yes, you did hear that correctly. A radioactive rabbit. 
Cassidy now has the ability to run, jump, and kick like a human rabbit. Hmm. Wonder if he eats a lot of carrots. Now, on the face of it, this seems a tad silly, but it's actually quite cool. Animals have many abilities and talents that we humans don't have. And even the lamest animal abilities could be seen as wonderful if we humans could do them. Let's be honest, humanity drew the short straw in the evolutionary department. I'd love to have the agility, speed and stealth of, say, a cat. Anyway, Cassidy doesn't want these powers and has no interest in donning a costume and playing superhero. And he'd appreciate Spidey not telling anyone if that's all the same with you. It's to Michelini's credit that he plays this concept straight. And we actually feel for Cassidy. Not everyone wants to be a hero. Cassidy wasn't driven by grief. He has no tragedy in his backstory to atone for. He just wants to live his life and look after his family. Of course, Nero turns out to be a wrong one. He's pissed off that 20 years working with the government netted him nothing, as his inventions were deemed too fatal. He's reworked them to be offensive weapons for some reason, and is planning on taking Jacoby's top-secret designs. Why he couldn't just sell his own designs apparently never crossed his mind. There's a subplot here that Silver Sable hires Sandman, now in his trying-to-go-straight phase, to help her track down Cruz, so that's nice, I guess. McFarlane's art is great in this issue, with a few anatomical anomalies, and the story moves fast enough for us to gloss over any issues. Cheesecake is provided once again by Murray Jane, who has a very form-fitting jacket, which is not how coats work. But the twist ending, Cassidy refusing to help when Spidey's up against the ropes, works really well. We close with Murray Jane dropping the bombshell I mentioned above, and Peter wondering where do they go from here. Issue 303's cover makes it look like Spider-Man is fighting Sandman and Silver Sable, which is a little bit of a bait-and-switch, given the interior. The title is also funny, Doc Savage, and Cheeky Marvel even uses the Doc Savage logo for the title. That gave me a chuckle. Michelini builds on his past stories really well. It can seem, on an issue-to-issue basis, that these are rather flimsy tales. Throwaway adventures with little to no substance, but over time, Michelini's building up these stories slowly, but in a way that really holds up. I'm not saying these stories are deep, but they are entertaining. And I feel like there's some planning going on here rather than simply making it up as he goes. Michelini also knows his artistic partner. This issue opens with two pages of Spider-Man swinging around. And when Peter gets home and speaks to Mary Jane, she's wearing another Victoria's Secret nightdress. I'm sorry to interfere with your wank-bank fantasies, lovely listener, but Mary Jane is a model. Her beauty regime before bed would take her at least 45 minutes and she'd sleep in one of those cream mask things and probably wear pants and a vest top. She would not dress like this all the time, especially when she's at home and especially when her job requires to be doled up to the nines. She'd be in sweatpants and a baggy t-shirt the minute she walked through the door. Story-wise, as I've alluded to, this builds upon the elements of the prior storylines. Peter and MJ are torn about Peter's job offer, and Silver Sable has found Cruz but needs some extra stealth assistance to crack his neo-Nazi group wide open. To that end, she recruits Spider-Man, offering a substantial fee to aid her and Sandman in bringing them down. McFarlane's Sandman is off-model somewhat, but it does at least pay some attention to mass and how it works, as we can see on pages 5 and 6 and the cover. McFarlane portrays Sandman quite sensibly. When he has those big mallet hands that he smashes people with, then the lower half of his body is quite slight, implying the extra sand is all in his hands. It's a nice touch, and not something other artists focus on. There are some oddities, as well as lovely moments. In the oddity column, back in issue 301, Cruz was looking to get vengeance on Sable for her bringing down his father, whereas here he's using drug money for a deal from the Kingpin to buy an island and set up a new Nazi state. Michelini has said that this storyline was taken from the then-current headlines featuring people like David Duke and the rising militant racist movement of the times. So even in a piece of fluff like this, there were serious undercurrents. In the lovely column, MJ's modelling session is really interesting, with Mary Jane looking completely different, with a very quiff-heavy hairdo and a prom dress, showing the flexibility of her career. 
also cute, Peter learning of Sable's advert in the bugle before it sees print, and the newspaper Spider-Man reads featuring a gag at the expense of McFarlane himself, claiming he was hospitalised after the destruction of Gamma Base, a reference to his recent departure from The Incredible Hulk. In the eyebrow-raising column for the kids in the audience, references to President Reagan and Garfield are dated pop culture gags. In the that's interesting column, the corner box of Spider-Man hanging upside down in his web comes from page 11 of this issue. The last third of the book is all-out action, with Sandman, Spidey and Sable taking down the neo-Nazis and Sable stuffing a gun in Cruz's mouth. It's high-octane, great fun, and culminates in MJ being willing to leave with Peter just as Peter has realised he's going to turn the job down and return to college. The final page is a teaser, with some shadowy men standing in a smoky room looking like they've walked off a Ridley Scott film and comparing pictures of Spider-Man all taken by Peter Parker. By the end of the week, the smoky man says, Peter Parker will be ours. Interestingly, the pictures the men are looking at are all well-picked shots from the John Romita era. These stories are definitely of a pattern. There's a flimsy plot that's a little deeper than we're initially led to believe, some nice McFarlane layout, a shot of Murray Jane wearing very little, and on to the next adventure. It's pretty fun, if frothy, but with the foreknowledge of all the grimness to come, it's nice to go back and enjoy some simple summer entertainments. And that concludes this week's episode next time couple of irons in the fire all spider-man related strangely enough because that's where the muse is taking me at the moment and we'll see what we end up choosing join me after this quick commercial break when i'll be reading your email the justice league wouldn't help him so batman formed a new team these people of power are all looking for something be it their past or a purpose or simply somewhere to fit in these are the heroes for a troubled age. They are the Outsiders. We are the Outsiders. Oh, we are the Outsiders. Covering Mike W. Barr's 1983 series from the very beginning as they face villains no other team can, like Agent Orange. The Force of July, and the Nuclear Family. <laughs> Puns. This is The Outcasters, a Batman and the Outsiders podcast. Look for us with The Huntress Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Or listen at our website, thehuntresspodcast.com, and follow us on Twitter at BatOutcasters. We are The Outcasters, because to live outside the law... You must be honest. Okay, let's delve into the email sack. Only one email, because obviously no one watches The Professionals. Denny O'Neill's Spider-Man from It's Zack Empire. Hello, Andy. Hello, Zack. Because of the way I listened to podcasts, I was able to hear all the episodes covering Denny O'Neill's Spider-Man all at once. It was interesting hearing this because another show had also just done a Denny-themed episode. I myself have yet to read this run and probably won't until it's collected in the epic format. I had to take what was being said at face value because I don't personally have experience with the run. To hear them tell it, it seemed like Denny's run was pretty forgettable. Lame villains and lame subplots are run easily skipped unless you're planning on reading it all. But here you say it, it seems like all that was really wrong was that Denny's villains just didn't have the staying power of other creators who worked on the title. It seemed like Denny didn't always have the best handle on Peter Parker, making him kind of a jerk, but I've always thought Peter is kind of a jerk. Perhaps not in the way of being outright cruel, but more of him being indifferent to most of the people he meets. I just thought it was interesting hearing such different takes on the same material so close together. Yeah, the, one of the likeable things about Peter is that he is a bit of a knobhead. I mean, I think that's one of the things that I've mentioned constantly in this retrospective of Spider-Man, going all the way through the Stan Lee stuff, that Peter's sometimes not that likeable. But I actually think that makes him more human. You know, there are two characters that I will give passes to for being pretty much on the nose all of the time. Steve Rogers and Clark Kent, and that's it. 
anyone else should have flaws and they should occasionally make mistakes and they should get things wrong because otherwise they're perfect and perfect's boring. Zach continues, you know I tend to only write in when you talk about Spider-Man, but I hope you don't take that as a sign I don't enjoy your other content. I really like it when you talk about older shows, but I usually haven't seen those shows and have nothing to comment. Looking forward to hear you talk about Roger Stern, and I guess you'll hear from me when those episodes come along. Well, it's funny you should mention that. Um, I did notice the other show that you mentioned, which I believe was Amazing Spider Talk. Very good show. Really enjoy that show. And I noticed that they were doing Denny at the same time that I did Denny. I did my stuff after they did their stuff, I think. I didn't listen to it beforehand. I may have listened to one, but not all of them, um, until I'd done my bit. And yet, I don't think we disagreed that much. They seemed to dislike it a lot more than I did. Maybe they didn't grow up reading it. Maybe they came to it later. And that always affects how you look at it. You've always got a soft spot for the stuff you came into. So, you know. But I also noticed that they too are about to cover Roger Stern's run. So I felt, well, the first time that we both did the same stuff together was a coincidence. But the second time I knew that they were doing Stern's run. Whereas I didn't know they were doing Denny's run. And I don't want to do something at the same time other people are doing it. I don't mind podcasts covering the same stuff. We're all pissing in the same pool, essentially. So, you know, there's going to be crossover. And what I think of it, as you pointed out here, Zach, is not what they think of it. So it's going to be two different perspectives. But at the same time, I didn't want to be covering it at the same time they were, if that makes any sense. So I have leapt into the Michelinie McFarlane run and I'll probably cover that before I go back and do the Roger Stern run. Okay. Just in case anyone was wondering, well, I thought said he was going to do Roger Stern. You know, life's fluid, you know, it's not binary. Stuff happens, doesn't it? Anyway, that's it for email for this week. If you want to email in, heykidscomics at virginmedia.com is the email address. I'll be back next time. Again, there's a couple of Spider-Man related irons in the fire and I'll return to Michelinie and McFarlane at some point in the future. Take care. Everything's going to be fine, hopefully. And we'll see you all real soon. Goodbye. (laughs) 